Hi, this is Jeffrey Tucker, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. You might also consider supporting this podcast by sharing it and even donating. LCI needs your help so it can continue creating great content. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Doug Stewart, and with me today is guest Mary Ruart. Mary Ruart is a former research scientist and current chair of an Austin-based ethical review board. She is chair of the International Society for Individual Liberty, secretary for a foundation for free society, and she has served on the boards of Libertarian National Committee, the Heartland Institute, and Fully Informed Jury Association. She's also author of the award-winning book, Healing Our World, The Compassion of Libertarianism, and a new book, Death by Regulation, How We Were Robbed of a Golden Age of Health and How We Can Reclaim It. Mary, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. So, Mary, you've been in the libertarian movement for many years. In fact, uh, dating back to the early 80s. Uh, tell us a little bit about your experience in uh, the Libertarian Party and just uh, your your experience in the libertarian movement. Well, you know, I'm going to start with the movement because actually I think it would be of interest to your listeners because it was my Catholic background that actually really sealed the deal for me <laughs> on libertarianism. What happened was I was learning about objectivism, you know, Ayn Rand's uh, Atlas Shrugged and her other books in college in the late 60s. And, and what happened was I, I was kind of a liberal, you know, I was the only problem I had with libertarianism is I, I was uncomfortable with the idea that selfish people might not help the poor. And then I realized because of my 11 years of Catholic schooling, <laughs> that while it might not be very compassionate for people to refuse to help the poor, if I pull the gun and put it to their head or ask the government to do it for me and uh, in order to take their money and give to the poor, that was less loving than what they were doing. So once I realized that using uh, initiating force against others, even for what seemed to be a good cause— uh, was less loving than letting them go their own way. I was sold. <laughs> so I thought your listeners might enjoy that. How did you get over the impulse that I think many people have when they they jump from, well, we shouldn't make people uh, be compassionate or kind or giving or any of those positive things that we want to see happen naturally? How did you make the leap from that to, yeah, but there's just this gut feeling that a lot of people have that, well, there should be at least some institution that makes people do this like minimum amount of it or something like there's a lot of people just have that hurt like that internal like uh oh if we don't make people then it'll never happen well you know what happened was i i actually sort of had a revelation on that um if i might use that word i was reading about our foreign policy and how it always seemed to result in bad bad ends and what occurred to me, uh, I had kind of a, an integration of uh, my Christian background, uh, the new age idea of self-responsibility, the libertarian ethic, of course, of non-aggression. And it kind of all came together for me when I realized that the ends and means are intimately related. 
So in other words, if we want to do some good in the world and we use bad end, or bad means, such as taxation or regulation or some other type of government aggression, then it actually backfires. And I had a great demonstration of this when I was renting to welfare recipients. So I would, I, and I did that because I felt like I wanted to do some real estate rehabilitation, but I wanted to be helping people at the same time. And I, I could see that in the area I lived in, Kalamazoo, Michigan, the, the disadvantaged really had poor housing. So I figured I'd start there. But what I found was that our welfare programs that are supposed to be helping people, and at the time I thought they helped people, but they were actually very destructive. And let me give you some examples. So, you know, young high school women would come to me and say, I'm pregnant, I'm going to have my baby in a couple months, and I'll be getting a welfare check so I can start renting from you. And when they did that, of course, they dropped out of high school, they didn't have a diploma, and they found out, not surprisingly, uh, to many of us that, you know, trying to take care of a child on a welfare check just doesn't do it. So they'd have two children, another child, so that they could get a bigger check. And then the third child, so they could get an even bigger check. And then in Michigan, you know, that's where things stopped. If you had more than three children, you didn't get any more money. So what these young women figured out by the time they were old enough to vote was that, hey, I'm going to be poor the rest of my life. I need to get a job. But, you know, by then they had three children that needed childcare. An entry-level job, especially without a high school diploma, isn't going to give you childcare, isn't going to give you health care benefits. You know, usually you need to work your way up the ladder to get that. So unless they had a mother or sister or somebody who would take care of their children while they were at work, they were really stuck. And so what our welfare programs seemed to do, because this was the common, the average woman on welfare was like this, at least in my area. So what, what this welfare was doing was tempting teens to, you know, make really poor financial decisions, especially the women. And that scarred them for life. Many of them just didn't have enough help and they were forever stuck in the poverty trap. You know, your experience and seeing that happen, you know, directly, I think is kind of an example of it's one example of how people come to realize that the libertarian way of looking at life is has something to offer because, you know, we can argue till the day is long about principles, but I think it, it often takes what people see before their eyes to realize something's not quite right with the world and the way that we're trying to go about things. Yes. And, and you know, up to that point in time, I had realized that taxation was theft, that uh, Welfare was a form of aggression. But what I didn't realize until I actually experienced it was that the ends and means were so intimately related. And what's very interesting and about libertarianism, it, it is the compassionate choice. And it's the compassionate choice because, as I said earlier, putting a gun to somebody's head and forcing them to do something that you think is good is a lot less loving than having them go their own way. And the beauty of libertarianism is if it's practiced, uh, a country, if a country practices it, the country will be wealthier and the poor will be better off. So even if people are selfish, the way liberty works, it just elevates everyone. So that's really the compassion of libertarianism. You don't have to be a softy or a liberal or, or even a kind-hearted person, as long as you don't aggress, 
And as long as the country you live in is, is non-aggressive, at least to a large extent, the benefits of liberty are so great <laughs> that everyone benefits. Yeah, well, I, you know, I, I just want to kind of bring that up that you keep talking about this compassion thing, because that's in your title. And I like books with bold titles. You know, there's books out there about libertarianism that have sort of this pretty neutral sounding title, like why everyone should be a libertarianism or what you need to know. And those are actually well-written books, but the title is not as provocative or does it have things on the cover like yours does in Healing Our World? I mean, your subtitle is The Compassion of Libertarianism, which is, it's not provocative on the one hand, but it is because if people see the title, they're like, the what? Yeah. You know? <laughs> and then you have even it gets even better underneath. It says how to enrich the poor, protect the environment, deter crime and diffuse terrorism. Well, that's quite the promise. And <laughs> it's uh, you, you tackle all of those things in a number of in, in throughout the book. And I, it's almost like there's a little bit of like trolling involved. The person who comes across the cover of your book and <laughs> like the what? Like I the a libertarian's going to promise me all of these things. I got to pick this up. <laughs> well, and it's so true. That's the beauty of it. You know, when we when we use good ends or good means, I'm sorry, we get good ends. And, and that's the beauty of it and the compassion of libertarianism. And nobody has to be a bleeding heart liberal or really even care about the poor. Although, of course, that's, in my opinion, ideal. So if they don't even care, but they're willing to leave aggression aside, both on a personal level and at a government level, then things just work out in a very compassionate way. Yeah. The, and the book is also, I mean, you used the example of uh, single mothers on welfare a few minutes ago, and your book is full of those kinds of examples that actually tell not necessarily specific stories, but the stories of how this kind of thing actually takes place. I think that's what's missing in a lot of libertarian books that kind of explain things. They they start with a theoretical level of like, oh, well, you know, we talk about incentives and if you disincentivize people, they're going to make poor choices. Or if you incentivize them in a certain way, they're going to be dependent on the government. And we kind of get that in principle, but there's more than just the incentive and then like what comes after. They're like different, different stages uh, and phases of someone's life that actually affects them. And you actually, uh, in your book, talk about here's what happens when, and then this happens. And you also, which I really love, talk about how it affects the people who are trying to enact these policies. Like it creates in us, we're different people because we think that aggression uh, is, is okay or permissible. Yes. Yes. I mean, aggression always starts with judgment. Of course, as Christians know, um, <laughs> Christ said, judge not, least ye be judged. And um, I find that to be uh, very important. Um, you know, Ayn Rand, who was the person who brought me into the movement, uh, she said, judge and be prepared to be judged. And I think that was, uh, as, as much as I admire her, I think this judgment uh, was a big mistake on her part. And I'm glad to see the Christian libertarians expanding because I think one of the roles that they can play in the movement is to help libertarians understand that judgment just backfires every time. You know, judgment is the way we start being aggressors, if you think about it. In other words, before we aggress against someone, we have to sort of separate ourselves emotionally from them. We have to judge them as... Um, you know, uh, someone who uh, maybe deserves to be stolen from or too dumb to know what they should do. So we have to force them to our will. You know, it always starts with this judgment. And I think most libertarians don't understand that that's the first step in aggression. And if we want to have and keep a libertarian world, we're going to probably have to do away with a lot of judgment. And, and I'll give you an example of how I think about this. So 
you know, let's assume we have a libertarian country that practices non-aggression. And you're walking down the street one day and you see a wallet on the sidewalk. And you pick it up and there's credit cards in it, there's money in it, uh, there's identification in it. Now, if you're a compassionate person, of course, uh, and not a judgmental person, you know, when you look at that, you'll really identify with the person who dropped their wallet. You're going to say, oh, my goodness, this person is probably freaking out, wondering where their wallet is. And you're going to pick up your phone, dial information and try to get contact information for that person so you can get them their wallet back. You know, that's going to be your first instinct. But if you're a judgmental person <laughs> or you're you're not a, you know, you don't think in terms of identifying with other people, uh, you might go, okay, let's see. Well, the non-aggression principle doesn't have any positive rights. So I have no obligation to return this. And I could leave it on the sidewalk, but somebody will pick it up and use the charge cards. I know what I'll do. I will cut up those charge cards for this person so that they don't uh, get used by the wrong person. But, you know, I'm there's no positive right. So I'm actually doing this person a favor. I'm going to keep the cash as my fee and uh, I'll just cut up the ID, too, so no one can use it. You know, and of course, <laughs> you see, there's a very different way of thinking when you when you're thinking about loving your neighbor as yourself <laughs> and when you're judging the neighbor or just don't have any things of compassion for them. And you start down the road, you know, is that aggression to take the money? <laughs> you know, you can see how it's easy to rationalize things. So right. this is what I think the libertarian Christians bring to our movement is the understanding of how important it is to think in terms of, of loving your neighbor or at least not being judgmental. Yeah, I mean, we, we've talked about on this program and in our on our website that, you know, at the very least, loving your neighbor, which is a command by Jesus, starts with not doing them any harm. It, it can certainly and often does go further than that in terms of positive assistance, you know, from a from an ethical or discipleship standpoint. But at the very least, it 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 means don't take their stuff. It means uh, consider, it means leave them alone to make their own decisions. Uh, and so it, at the very least, it means that. And and I really, like I said, I, I really like how you deal with how does it affect us as we treat other people. Another thing that I, I've already mentioned is that you kind of give examples of how the law of unintended consequences really kind of comes back to, to bite us uh, in the end. To give our listeners a little taste, uh, would you be able to talk about a couple of those Sure. For us? Sure. I, I have a couple here. Like the, the one that kind of, as they say, sticks in my craw is the, the ban on DDT. Uh, do you, sure. Can you elaborate on why that was such a bad move? Sure, sure. Well, you know, um, DDT is a pesticide and it kills mosquitoes that carry the malaria virus. And that's one of its main uses. So, you know, when we banned it in the U.S., we also put a lot of pressure on other countries to ban it as well. And the way we did this is we said, hey, we're not going to give you any foreign aid anymore if you don't ban DDT. Well, of course, in other countries that are in a warmer climate, they have even a bigger problem than we do here in the U.S. with malaria. And so their, <laughs> their governments wanted that money. Uh, in some cases, because the governments were tyrannical and wanted to keep it for themselves. But in other cases, they felt they needed that money to really help their population. You know, But when they, when they stopped using DDT, malaria, which had almost been 
uh, you know, deaths from malaria had been down really to just a handful of people. Uh, it started up again and millions, millions died. So this was really a horrific thing. And these governments finally said, hey, we're going to start spraying again. And they did. Now, they the good news was they sprayed in a more conservative way. Instead of spraying all the land and the crops and everything, they basically started doing things like just spraying a little bit around the houses, um, mosquito netting, things like this. So that was that was a good thing that they used less. But, you know, we lost millions of people because of that ban. And had we not had the ban... Had we instead said, well, let's use it more responsibly, that would have been a much better thing to do. And and that would have evolved eventually, of course, as knowledge about DDT increased. And even though DDT has some negative effects, a lot of the stuff, a lot of the pesticides that uh, replaced DDT had even greater side effects. So we didn't do ourselves any favor by banning this you know, fairly innocuous pesticide. And I say fairly innocuous. I just want to point out that the the number of lives saved by DDT was so great that they actually gave the discoverer of DDT a Nobel Prize because that's how important an advance it was in the ability to knock down the number of people that got malaria. Yeah, it, it, it represents an example of the failure to account for uh, what Alex Epstein calls a human standard of value, and then calculating in all of the the costs and benefits to something like like banning DDT. Uh, of course, it saved something. Uh, you know, Rachel Carson had in mind she wanted to save. I think it was like the eggs of some certain breed yeah. of bird or something like that. But I mean, and and it's one thing to say, oh, well, a few thousand people around the world might die, you know, as a consequence. It's another when it's Yeah, millions. well, actually, even if it's thousands, if you think about it, if we put a ban in place that kills thousands, we're responsible for those deaths. And of course, we didn't, as the United States, make any real restitution or anything for these deaths. It certainly didn't make yeah. it to the families that were affected. Uh, you know, that's when you when you prevent someone from having a life saving product, <laughs> you know, you're responsible for that. Yeah, that's not that that goes against the good neighbor. It policy, sure does. Right? Well, and I think it goes against yeah. any Christian ethic. You know, you're not loving your neighbors yourself, certainly when you take something from them that could save their lives. Yeah. Yeah. Well, are there any examples of this kind of law of unintended consequences that, that kind of really particularly irk you like things that just. Oh, you just get so frustrated when people advocate for certain things because you know how damaging it is. Well, one of the things I have a lot of knowledge about that most people don't is the impact of regulations on life-saving drugs. And the reason I know that is I was in the pharmaceutical industry for 19 years, and I saw firsthand as the 1962 amendments to the Food and Drug Act expanded. You know, they were kind of open-ended amendments. They still are metastasizing to this day. And I use the word metastasize because they're killing people. And like, for example, one of the things that they did, the 62 amendments were supposed to increase the safety of drugs and their effectiveness. So what happened when all these extra studies were put into place is that instead of taking four years to go from the lab bench to the marketplace, a new drug took 14 years by the end of the century. And so that extra 10 years means that a lot of people died waiting. And you can calculate how many died waiting because we have a pretty good feel 
of how many lives are saved by the drugs that are currently on the market. So it was about 15 million Americans. And remember, anything that happens in the U.S. kind of (laughs) uh, ripples out into the world. So I haven't even counted the number of people that have died throughout the world because of what happened in the U.S., And these laws, um, these regulations also decreased the innovation. And it doesn't matter how rich you are. If something hasn't been invented, you can't buy it. And again, conservative estimates suggest about 27 million people died because of that. If you calculate this up as much as you can, you realize that about half the people who have died since 1962 lost about a decade of their lives. Or another way of looking at it is we're all losing five years of our lives. And I usually say five to 10 because the shift that these regulations cause from inexpensive prevention to expensive treatment probably has doubled that number. I can't prove that, but that would be my educated guess based on my knowledge of of what the shift created. Yeah, that's particularly uh, troubling to hear. And, you know, I took one statistics class in in graduate school, and I do remember them talking about how drugs take forever to go to trial. And I think like only one of two things I remember in that class, and this is one of them, is that if the drugs are particularly successful during trial, they'll rush them to market for some reason. But that's like, for some reason, that's just your your lab from four to 14 years, like kind of reminded me of that. I mean, is that true? Is it do, can they make it to market faster if they're like wildly successful statistically? Not much. No. OK, so that's hardly even happening if all, if at all. Right. The only the only drugs that have been really, truly rushed to market are those that have come from other government agencies. There definitely is. Oh, OK. Yeah, you know, I was working in the AIDS area and um, it was very interesting. Uh, and I in my book, Death by Regulation, I have quotes from some of the AIDS activists saying, yeah, um, if it's if it's not invented here, <laughs> meaning in, in the NIH or the government, then uh, it doesn't get rushed to market. In fact, they they say stumbling blocks are put in the way. And if you look at the it, certainly if you look at how the other AIDS drugs ended up uh, coming through the system, you can you can see that that is probably true. And, you know, we might be willing to wait a little longer if this improves safety. But in fact, there's absolutely no evidence that safety has been improved. In fact, all the parameters suggest it's gone in the opposite direction. And, you know, that's understandable when you realize that the reason that bad drugs get on the market are not because the manufacturers aren't willing to do safety studies, because it's, you know, it's in their best interest to do them. Because if the drug has to get pulled from the market, it's very expensive for them. And, you know, in lawsuits and things, but there's no evidence at all that safety is improved. In fact, like I said, the the numbers go the opposite way. So (laughs) we have to really recognize that bad drugs get on the market because we just don't know any better. Our science isn't that good. We're going to miss a couple of times. So before the amendments, about two and a half percent of all the drugs that came to market were eventually taken off. And now it's about 3.3 percent. It's a little higher. Probably not that much different, really, given how small the number is. But it's not certainly not going in the direction of fewer drugs taken off the market. So it's very, very difficult to say that there's any increase in safety. And the same is true for effectiveness. There's really very little evidence that there's more effectiveness. Hey, folks, Norman Horn here from LCI. 
Would you do us a quick favor and rank us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe to us? High rankings helps us get the word out there. And now let's get back to the show. What do you think accounts for the fact that regulation in something like the Food and Drug Administration and just this whole idea that, okay, we're going to invent a product that is supposed to help somebody like this is the world where it is about trials and running tests and calculations and things. You'd think the people that are aiming to regulate these industries would be of mind to calculate, well, if we're going from four to 14 years, and I don't know if that happened overnight or if it was kind of a gradual increase of time, but you'd think they would wonder, well, wait, and within that 10 years, I mean, are we really, are we robbing people of their lives? Like they don't even ask that question. I mean, what what's going on behind the scenes there that's just, <laughs> that's literally killing people? Well, actually there are many FDA uh, executives in the system who understand that if you delay getting a life-saving drug on the market, uh, it can be as bad or worse than putting a bad drug on the market. They get that, but the incentives for them are wrong. One of the things that the amendments did is change the way that they operate in terms of approvals. So, for example, before the amendments, the drug companies would send all their data to the FDA. And if the FDA didn't object in six months, the drug company could market the drug. But the amendments actually made some FDA examiner sign on the dotted line, I, I think this drug should be approved. And that was a big disincentive for them to approve anything because every drug has a side effect. And every drug doesn't work in some people. So it's just a matter of time before some side effect comes to the attention of the American public. They complain to Congress. Congress beats up on the FDA. Why did you approve this bad drug? <laughs> you can see that if they really want to protect their jobs, uh, the best way to do things is not to approve any drugs at all, or if they do, make sure that they've had every study they can think of done so if they get called on the carpet by Congress, they can point to those 14 years and say, hey, we made them do all these studies and it didn't show up. <laughs> so I wanted to talk about this uh, a little bit later. But while we're on the topic, you mentioned a libertarian world and, you know, finding somebody's wallet on the street. Well, what's the libertarian world look like where there is no FDA or central agency in the federal government approving certain drugs? The, the obvious natural question for the non-libertarian is, well, who's going to decide when it's safe? And that's usually, you know, a complicated answer, but it's an important answer. It is. It's a very important question to ask, and people should ask it. And the answer, of course, is in a libertarian world, there'd be certification. In fact, there is today, too, to some extent. But let me kind of go through what that is, because not everyone understands what certification is. So um, a real-life example is we have our electrical appliances certified. They are not regulated. They're certified. So, for example, Underwriters Laboratory, or UL as it's mostly known, looks over the electrical product, and if it doesn't meet their standards for their seal of approval, they work with the manufacturer until it does, at least if the manufacturer is willing, of course, to work with them. And then if it meets all of UL's requirements, they put their seal of approval if you turn over any electrical appliance, you'll see the UL logo on most of them. Now, appliances can be sold without the UL seal of approval, but most or most uh, I'm sorry, retailers like to stock products that have that seal of approval because then they're assured that, yes, this appliance is pretty safe. So you could do the same thing with 
with drugs. And in fact, in the European Union, they actually have something similar for medical devices. The uh, certifiers work with the companies to make sure the product is safe. And then the certifier makes a recommendation to the regulators that, hey, yes, we've gone through this. This product looks good. And and basically, the regulators pretty much rubber stamp what the certifiers say. Now, of course, in a true certifying system, you wouldn't have any regulators involved at all. And you as a consumer could wait until you see a seal of approval from the certifier of your choice, or if you feel desperate, and I can tell you the AIDS patients were pretty desperate, uh, you could take a drug that had not yet been approved. Uh, You know, what happened with the AIDS patients is they sort of did their own certification. Uh, They couldn't wait 14 years to have a new drug on the market. So what they did is they imported drugs from Europe where more drugs were available because of our tough regulations here. They started ramping up their nutrition so that their body could fight the AIDS virus. And in addition, they hired black market chemists to make the very drugs that we were working on in the pharmaceutical companies, distributed them throughout the AIDS community. And by the time the FDA gave us permission to test our drugs in people, every AIDS patient in the country who wanted our drugs had already had them and were resistant. So we had to wait until new patients were diagnosed with AIDS to do the tests that the FDA required. And you see, this is what happens. Um, The AIDS patients did a pretty good job of letting people know what side effects were there and everything. They did a really good job. But if you watch the award-winning movie, Dallas Buyers Club, you saw that the FDA prosecuted these people, at least the ones that didn't have a lot of media attention. They pretty much left the ones in California alone because they were pretty well organized. But if they were in Texas, for example, uh, they came after them. These terribly sick people were prosecuted and persecuted at a time when, you know, they they needed our support. And that's not very compassionate. No, that's like... That's like an example of like the opposite. Like, I just don't understand the the mindset behind going and I mean, these are people who they're not selling drugs to make, uh, you know, money. They're, they're making them for their own benefit. They're making them to not die, like literally not die uh, to better their lives. Um, it's it's just it's somewhat mind boggling to me uh, that people have that mindset. I mean, on the one hand, I guess I shouldn't be surprised human nature being what it is. But uh, yeah, it's definitely <laughs> it's definitely frustrating to hear that example. I, that was actually something I did not know about the the black market in uh, AIDS, AIDS drugs. Yeah. And actually, cancer patients had some of the same concerns, but they didn't want to go to the black market. So what they did is they sued the FDA on the grounds that the Constitution, um, you know, really permitted them to, uh, you know, fight for their life, life, you know, life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. (laughs) And initially, the courts agreed with them, but the FDA asked the court to reconsider. And it did. And it found for the FDA. In other words, it said, there is no constitutional right for Americans to save their lives with unapproved drugs. The Supreme Court refused to hear the case, so the lower court ruling stood. And the right to try legislation that was just passed by Congress is basically the same thing that the cancer patients wanted. If they were terminally ill, they wanted to have access to drugs that had been tested for safety in humans, but not yet been tested for effectiveness. And that's essentially what Right to Try lets people do. It was a kind of a reincarnation of the cancer suit, 
Initially, right to try was passed state by state in about 40 states, and then Congress picked it up and passed it. The problem is this. Uh, if you have a right to try drug that you want to give a patient, you really need to think about it because you have to keep that drug in the FDA's good graces. <laughs> and the FDA can punish companies for going around them and working directly with the patient by dragging their feet on the approvals or the different steps in the approval process. And so I think many drug companies are going to be reluctant to use right to try. The good news is that there is another initiative coming along, Free to Choose Medicine from the Heartland Institute. And in, this is very similar to Right to Try, except that once the drug gets into the free to choose medicine track, it does not have to stay in the FDA's good graces. So um, this means that it has a better chance uh, because the drug companies won't be quite as fearful about the FDA trying to slow down their approvals. <laughs> does Big Pharma, uh, the drug companies, do they basically take their business overseas in any way that allows people to like just go to a, a, a less regulated environment to try these drugs? Oh, yes. Yes. When I was in the industry, the 1962 regulations were ramping up. And as a result of that ramp up, we did. We did our first studies in Europe where they had fewer regulations and often marketed them there first. Uh, the FDA wouldn't accept those studies, so we had to do the same ones in the U.S., but the benefit that we got from going overseas is now we knew what dose we needed, how often we had to treat, you know, all those things that you really don't know with a new drug. And that's what makes new drugs very difficult. To share a story with your listeners, I actually got a call from the FDA one day, and they said, Dr. Ruart, we understand you just filed for a patent for prostaglandins and liver disease. And I said, yes, I did. Prostaglandins are a natural substance that every cell in our body makes. And the company I was working with, Upjohn, was a leader in that area. And the FDA was all excited. They said, oh, you know, we've been talking about this. This is really great because 100,000 people die every year from the type of liver disease that you're going to treat. And, you know, all we can recommend is bed rest. So we really, you know, really want to support you in developing this compound. Well, the problem is when you have a very new drug, and no one's ever treated the disease successfully before. You don't know how much to give. You don't know how often to give. You don't know how long you need to give it because liver disease takes years to develop. It probably would take years to cure. Um, you don't know how many people that you need in the study to get the statistical significance that the FDA wants. So with all these unknowns, if you don't guess right the first time, you do years of studies, find out you don't have the statistical significance and have to start all over again. And what management figured out was that if we had to repeat the studies, by the time our drug got to market, it would go generic the first day and we'd never recover our development costs. So this is how innovation is destroyed by regulations. And this is, this is very tragic because it, it is the innovations that are life-saving. You know, it's the innovations that really uh, make it possible to have that higher standard of healthful living that we want. And, and not just in drugs, but also in nutrition. Unfortunately, because the amendments said that any drug that was marketed has, had to be tested with effectiveness, the FDA started saying any food or vitamin where the manufacturer makes a health claim has to go through the same process as pharmaceuticals. 
So now they don't make any health claims on the cover of, of the labels. Yeah, because, you know, like, for example, the FDA sent out warning uh, warning letters to the cherry growers and the almond growers, uh, I'm sorry, walnut growers, uh, to tell them, hey, you're, you're citing these scientific studies showing that the compounds in your food, you know, have health benefits. That makes your cherries and walnuts a drug. <laughs> well, they also, I think they went after General Mills about five years ago for Cheerios. Yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I mean, there's actually quite a few stories we could tell. The sad thing is, for example, Diamond Walnuts got sued based on the warning letter for misbranding. So for fraudulent advertising, and they had to settle out of court, you know, for a huge sum of money. And and that's the problem with this is that if the FDA is sending out these warning letters, any manufacturer can basically be destroyed in our litigious society uh, because it it suggests that they're doing something wrong by telling people about the health benefits of their product. So I'm, I'm going to ask you a, a, a contentious uh, question regarding within libertarianism, I should say. Uh, what is your what are your what is your take on the role of patents uh, in the pharmaceutical industry? Yeah, that's a very good question. Well, from you know when I started at Upjohn, we did not necessarily need patents to develop a drug, but a couple of years after I joined. Management said, hey, from now on, we have to have a patent. And the reason was the costs of development were rising along with this increase in the timeline. So it got to the point where the only way you could hope to recover your costs was to have a patent. Actually, about two drugs out of every 10 today actually, you know, actually make enough money to recover their development costs. The industry is, is depending upon blockbuster drugs to support you know, all of the other ones. What are the numbers going along with that? Like, how long does a patent last? Just for for sake of like, this, we're we're recording this in 2018, and I'm sure things change over time. But sure. uh, what what are some of the numbers with respect to like how long does a drug stay under patent, and when does it go generic? I mean, I remember as a kid, there were several drugs that like like over the counter drugs that finally had generic mm-hmm. options, and my parents were you know of course happy uh, for that, and we're like, what? This isn't this is the same exact stuff. Uh, so what what's the time frame here that we're dealing with? Just to kind of give people uh, a sense of the yeah, a lot here. depends on the type of patent because there's different types. But for the average, you know, um, it, the way it's usually discussed is you've got about a 19 year patent life. Uh, but the thing is, it takes years to get the patent. So drug companies file for patents before they're even sure if they're going to develop the drug because by the time they actually get the drug approved. The patent life has been reduced because it's the clock starts ticking when you get the patent. So, you know, I think the average now is maybe about 12 years of patent life. And, and it, you know, if you, you look over time, you see that that number varies quite a bit depending on how long it took the drug to get to market and things like that. All right. Well, that was... Um... Man, this is that's a this is a book we need to get uh, that everyone needs to read. Death by Regulation. Uh, it just it just such an intriguing example, and I think any libertarian already knows that the the industry is well overregulated. But understanding how uh, it gives people talking points, gives people things to talk about when they're you know discussing with their mostly progressive friends who you know think that they need to regulate every single aspect of our lives. Um, so as we wrap up a little bit, I just want to go back to your your book, Healing Our World, and just kind of point out one of the things that I think is a really helpful way to look at life. And you have 
have, I think, throughout the book, a better way as one of the headings, I think, near the almost every the end of every chapter. And it's it's a theme because you're helping people see a new way of looking at the world rather than like trying to just simply say, well, this is bad and we should get rid of it. Yes, because, you know, <laughs> it's sometimes our imagination isn't very good and we don't see even as libertarians how it would work in the real world. And one of the things that I did with healing. Uh, I didn't start out this way, but things fell into my lap, so I did it. <laughs> Were practical examples of how liberty works in the toughest testing ground of all, the real world. <laughs> and I've included over a thousand references and healing, so that it still, I think, remains today the best compilation of the pragmatic effects of liberty. And this is important for us because I think that what works um, and what is right are basically two sides of the same coin. There really isn't a distinction because if you think about it for a moment, very few of us would be interested in pushing libertarianism if it actually caused people to starve in the streets or destroyed the environment, caused wars. You know, I mean, in other words, if libertarianism made bad things happen in the real world, it truly isn't an ethical principle that we can live with. <laughs> and yeah, that's the way I look at it as well. You the two sides of the same coin. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So and and actually when I wrote Healing the first time, I was actually criticized heavily for making any pragmatic arguments because back then most libertarians thought the only way to advocate for liberty was to use the ethical arguments. And certainly those are powerful. And a lot of people understand, but you know, if it doesn't work, <laughs> what good is it? <laughs> Wait, how? Well, forget, I mean, okay. So I, I would just, even my response would be like, well, how else do you expect to convince people who don't care about the 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 first order ethical implications? Like if, if we're talking about how it actually affects people, then we need to talk about how it actually affects people. Well, you know, when the movement started, it was very different than it is now. And, um, and maybe it needed to start that way. I don't know. But, you know, the emphasis was on the principles. And of course, the emphasis still needs to be on the principles since the means and ends are intimately related. You know, we need to we need to stay on point with the principles. But the thing is, we also need to understand how the principles work in the real world, because that's what people want to hear. And and that's why healing our world is especially good for people who want to talk to liberals or environmentalists or New Agers or Christians even, because I actually I have some sidebars in healing our world. And you might have noticed that the Bible is the most heavily referenced uh, for sidebars, <laughs> you know, so it's, it really, yes, it, it, I did. Well, and you also, your parts are dividing up the Lord's prayer and applying them throughout the book. Yes. Yes. And, you know, I, I tried to do that because what, what I, I learned in this revelation I talked about briefly earlier in the, in the hour is that, you know, these, all these parts are different facets of the diamond of Liberty. And that's what I wanted to show. And unfortunately, at least at the time, healing was written. And even it's even true today to a large extent. The focus of most libertarians is on recruiting conservatives who really, frankly, uh, I think are not our best target. I think our best target are the liberals because they care if they care about the poor, if they truly care about the poor and if the environmentalists truly care about the environment, they're going to want what works. And liberty is what works. So liberty pretty much gives everyone what they want. 
even if they want like power and money and they kind of want to squeeze the regulations so that they're on top, that creates a problem for them. And and maybe a good way to end for your audience is this little story, if I have time. <laughs> Do I? Oh, yeah, go ahead. Okay. So back in the late 80s, I met someone who was a propagandist for the government. And he basically, his, his job basically was to convince people that these regulations and laws, which were bad for them, were actually good. <laughs> so that's what he did. And uh, I had, uh, I was in a situation where I could talk to him for a while and I noticed he wasn't happy. I, I asked him, well, you know, what, do you, what are your goals in life? And he said, without missing a beat, he said, power and money. And I thought he was kidding at first, but he wasn't. <laughs> and, and, uh, oh my. But he had power and money. And so I realized my question had been the wrong one. So I said, what do you think it would take to make you happy? And he paused for a moment. And he said, well, you know, I think I would need to feel connected to the human race. And I don't. And, you know, it took me years to, to wake up to what he had actually said. But, you know, if you think about it, how could he feel connected to people when his job, what he did for a living and basically treated his family the same way was to basically tell lies. In other words, he had to separate himself from everyone else before he told those lies. Because before you can do that, you have to say, oh, this person's stupid. I can deceive them. Um, you know, these people need to be controlled because they don't know any better. You know, you say something like that. You make a judgment like we were talking about earlier. And and so you separate yourself from the rest of the human race. And when you do that, um, you probably destroy the happiness you're looking for when you go after power and money. Because why would a person go after power and money except that they think it would make them happy? And this gentleman had actually had a very insightful way of thinking about this. He realized that, you know, to be happy, he needed a connection to other humans. And of course, you know, we're a social animal. <laughs> it's probably genetically <laughs> in our in our uh, system, you know, that we are a social animal. And so it's very difficult to uh, think of yourself as separated from the rest of humans and actually feel like, yeah, I'm a happy person. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, and, and this gives me hope because you see, if, if we actually profited by aggression, either, I mean, and, and many people do, of course, with power and money, but if we ultimately got what we wanted through aggression, which, you know, if we want, if we want, we all want happiness. So if these things actually brought happiness, then we would always be at war. There would be no hope for a libertarian society, but because they don't, because aggression doesn't serve us, even though we often think it does. <laughs> One day, when the light bulb goes off and we wake up as a as a uh, you know as a large portion of society, aggression's just not going to happen because it'll be counterproductive. And that's why I have so much hope for the libertarian movement. Well, I think that your your perspective on things brings a lot of the libertarian movements angle on any issue that people have a question about. If they're wondering about libertarianism, I think your your book really does a great job of sort of tackling all that. I know you you and I both agree that that 
we may have more hope for those are, of our friends on the left because of the care and compassion element. Uh, I know Robin Kerner, who is um, a strategist and libertarian, he, he said that we have more in common with the left uh, psychologically uh, than we do with the right. And, and I think there's something to that. But I, I also say that all of the stories and the, the principles and the two sides of the coin that you cover in your book, they work for many angles of libertarianism. So I cannot recommend this book highly enough. Uh, so th thank you for writing it. It's one of those ones I wish I had read years ago, uh, but didn't. And now I'm reading it. I'm like, why didn't I read this years ago? I Listeners will know that I do this fr fairly frequently. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's so many books out. You know, back when I wrote the first um, edition of Healing, I felt like I had covered about 80% of the libertarian literature. When I did the 2015 edition, it was like, maybe I've got 20%. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's good. You, you, I, I think this is a staple for any libertarians library, uh, whether they're a Christian or not, uh, because it's just, it, it just tackles things from, from a whole, whole perspective. It's also provocative and it's, it's easy to read. It's not, it's not super dense, high, high end philosophical, you know, 10 pages on one little principle. I mean, this is, it, it reads very easily. You've even got diagrams. I mean, yeah. All right, listeners go buy the book. We're going to wrap up this episode. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for joining us today mary oh well you're welcome and and if your listeners want to learn more they can always go to my website ruart.com r-u-w-a-r-t.com i have a free library there's lots of good stuff there for everyone all right thanks Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. The audio engineers were Doug Stewart and Jason Rink, and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horn. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com. Music